Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr. On this month's podcast, we're joined by former Metropolitan Police Detective Peter Blexley. Peter spent the majority of his career working undercover against organized criminal gangs in the war on drugs. We discuss what it's like to work undercover as a police officer, and we talk about the wider issues of the war on drugs and the relationship of the drugs trade to terrorism. If you're enjoying the work that we do on this podcast, please support us by becoming a subscriber. You can do that by going to patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast. That's patreon.com forward slash drycleanercast. If you subscribe up to $5 a month, you'll be able to get access to a new show that we're producing that will come out quarterly called Need to Know. On Need to Know, we will be discussing the intelligence stories that have dominated the last quarter, and we'll be doing that with former intelligence and law enforcement professionals, and we'll get their perspective on the stories that have dominated the reporting of the intelligence community for that last quarter. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner. Peter, welcome to The Dry Cleaner cast. Thank you very much. Can you just tell us a bit about how you became a police officer and a little bit about your career in the London Metropolitan Police? Yes, certainly. Well, I was a bit of an errant youth, um, the product of uh, a one-parent family. My dad left when I was young and my mum struggled on alone and consequently I was a bit of a rudderless ship and I got involved in petty crime, shoplifting, I was forever gambling and... uh, I was quite handy with a can of spray paint and all those sort of things that I'm not overly proud of. Um, And it got to the point really where my mother was quite concerned about what the future was going to hold for me. One day I returned home to find a policeman in my house. My mother had organised that and this officer sat down and told me what a good idea it would be for me to join the cops. He convinced me um, and... A short while later, I applied to join the police cadets, and in January 1977, I walked through the gates of Hendon. And um, what happened sort of beyond Hendon? Um, tell us a little bit more about your sort of your progression through the force. Well, it was a the going to Hendon itself was a bit of a landmark yeah. event in my life because all of a sudden, from I went from teachers that I disrespected to very hard instructors ex-military, former Royal Marines and those kind of guys, which clearly you weren't going to mess with. And uh, consequently, I relished the discipline, threw myself into that. And uh, sometime afterwards, I was sworn in as a police constable. I got posted to Peckham in South East London. And so began my policing career. And you ended up in a unit known as SO10. Was it SO10 in those days? Yes, I, I, I... did my stint in uniform, then I became a detective, then I was a detective at a police station, but soon after that I was determined to progress to Scotland Yard. Um, that was the sort of uh, the aim of, of, of any ambitious, hard-working young detective. 
I was posted to Scotland Yard in 1985 to the Central Drug Squad and soon after volunteered for my first undercover operation. I was pretty successful pretending to be a gangster. It wasn't a quantum leap really from who I was or, or who I had been, that errant youth, into pretending to be a lawless kind of hoodlum. Um, and myself and my other colleagues working undercover were so successful that there became a need to centralise our work, to have us all in a, in a register, to provide us with better equipment, facilities, training and all of that. And really, yes, just to centralise our work. So I was part of, uh, uh, I was a founder member of SO10. We went on the first training course where we developed the training, discussed what greater or what, what alternative input we could all bring to it. And thereafter, I became involved in the, in the training of, of, of other undercover cops. Yeah. yeah. And did you get, um, did uh, police officers from other countries also come to be trained by SO10? Yes. Pretty soon after SO10's inception, <clears throat> the reputation spread worldwide and we had officers from other parts of the country coming down to London to be trained. We had other officers from around the world coming to observe what we did. And in fact, I ended up going to the FBI headquarters in Quantico as an observer on their training. And that was a very useful thing to do. Yeah, the expertise sort of crossover is brilliant, yeah. Yeah, it, it did, you know, because let's face it, telling lies is telling lies and it's a... a, a obviously a global thing, but of course the cops in, in America, the FBI in particular, had a lot of expertise that we could call upon. And it was, it was very, very interesting. In fact, up until the time I went to America, I was always determined and I told fellow officers that I trained that you must always stay in role, no matter what the situation, no matter what the level of threat there was against you, always stay in role do not blow your cover because my thinking was that I wanted to protect the role I was playing, protect any potential informant that might have introduced me into this criminal organisation. Then I went to Quantico. Then they played me a tape from a wiretap of an undercover officer who had stayed in role throughout and paid the ultimate price. The gangsters killed him. Wow. The FBI's thinking was, if you really are staring down that barrel of a gun, and you feel the trigger is about to be pulled and you're about to lose your life, what you should then do is break cover and say, look, hang on a minute, before you pull that trigger, I want you to know I'm actually an undercover cop and you will get a far greater sentence, potentially you will face the electric chair if you shoot a cop. That was their thinking. And it was a very sound thinking and it was based on very harsh experiences that they'd learned and I kind of bought into that. Mm, that's very extreme, actually, croaky, yeah. But, but that was the level of threat that we were up against. Yeah. You know, I, I was threatened frequently when, when working undercover. Um, and and it, was, it, it changed my mind entirely. Yeah. Well, the big difference I've noticed from reading about undercover policing and through your, your great book, um, the big difference between undercover policing and like traditional espionage work is actually that the officer actually does go undercover at great personal risk instead of using a recruited agent to work for them. So, in a sense, why do we need police officers to go at risk and work undercover? Undercover policing is about the most cost-effective 
kind of tool you can have in the battle against serious and organised crime because you are in at the very heart of the conspiracy, that criminal conspiracy. You are hearing firsthand what the gangsters are plotting and planning. In fact, you'll probably be contributing towards whatever it is that they're plotting and planning. So you're, a, you're, the, you're the best informant the police can have because you're actually a cop. And it's a lot, lot cheaper to send an undercover cop out to, to mix, infiltrate and hang out with a criminal organisation than it is, for example, to put a surveillance team on them, to bug their houses, to monitor their phones, all of those things which are manpower intensive and therefore inherently expensive, it's a lot more cost effective to put an undercover cop into the heart of that organisation and get a first-hand account of what's going on. Yeah. And what kind of cases are undercover officers typically assigned to work on? Well, when I was at the peak of my powers in the 1980s, of course, we had the explosion of cocaine and crack cocaine and other drugs, ecstasy, for example, into the 80s and the 90s. These drugs were being seen in unprecedented quantities on the streets of the UK. So the bulk of my work revolved around that. But I also pretended to be a gangster who would buy lorry loads of stolen goods, for example, whether it be alcohol, cigarettes, training shoes, high-value clothing, all of that kind of stuff. I pretended to be a contract killer. So if somebody came forward, an informant, saying, I've heard that so-and-so is looking for an assassin, I would then step forward and go and play the role of that assassin. I bought antiques, not very often, but I did. Um, I also bought large quantities of counterfeit currency and that kind of crime. Very much, very much the, the serious and organised crime, which was very distinct and entirely different from the largely discredited work that Special Branch was doing into political activists. How long do these undercover assignments typically last? <laughs> How long's a piece of string? <laughs> I literally did jobs where I'd get a phone call in the morning, go and meet the informant, we would then brief each other, I'd then go out and meet the bad guys, and that evening they might bring the goods onto the plot and be arrested, so it could all be done and dusted in a day. Other operations would last days, weeks and months. You'd spend months undercover performing the same role, frequenting the same premises, trying to bring about the downfall of the criminals. So there was no hard and fast rule as to how long an undercover operation would last. You would, it was always dictated by the circumstances. Yeah, and am I right remembering there was one particular um, long-term undercover operation where you were running a warehouse or something, is that right? Yeah, so every day, every day I would go to this transport warehouse and profess to be... Uh, an employee of this company. It was my responsibility to look after the warehouse. The trucks would come to me, they would be loaded up and go off to their next destination or they would unload their goods to me and, and then be transited on through some other mode of transport. And yes, every day I was there. So I had to have a pretty swift crash course in the transport industry. Um, the cost of, of transporting goods to and from different countries and different locations all that kind of stuff, become familiar with the lorries, the trucks, uh, tachographs were, were coming in and, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and so obviously you've got to go really deep into that role to just be credible to everybody from the members of the public who might use that warehouse to the criminals that you're trying to, to sort of catch. 
Absolutely, when a career lorry driver turns up at this warehouse and he wants me to drive the forklift and unload it and all that kind of stuff, if I can't talk the talk and walk the walk, I'll very quickly get sussed out as being a fraud. So you needed to to know your stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, are there any kind of like do's and don'ts of working undercover, any kind of hard and fast rules? Stick to what you know. Okay, I the character I portrayed invariably was a South London wide boy, villain, gangster, who'd made a few quid, who had a few quid available to reinvest into criminal ventures. I couldn't for a moment profess to be some public school educated expert in fine art. That just wasn't my bag. What I could do and what I did do was be the driver or the minder for an undercover colleague who did profess to be that person that was fine. I could be a driver or a minder to any of the undercover cops within the system. That was fine. Um, but generally speaking, when I was in the lead role, I'd stick to what I know, and that was just being a South London oik, basically. <laughs> and um, so, like the so like the work of intelligence services, you also have to use informants to to gather vital information. So, how do you go about recruiting these informants? And typically, what kind of people are they? informants are the lifeblood of the battle against serious and organised crime. They're the ones who are hanging around with villains, often they're career criminals themselves. They really know the drill and they can become informants for a variety of motives. Quite often it's because they've been arrested themselves and they are staring down the barrel of a significant jail term and they want to mitigate that as much as they possibly can. So if they can be granted bail, if it's not widely known that they've been arrested, they can then filter back into the criminal organisations and provide information which will then lead to arrests and seizures and convictions, all of which will be put in a letter to the judge that eventually hears their case and the judge will take one look at that letter and all of a sudden that person gripping the rail of the dock of the old bailey instead of getting 15, 12 or 10 years, suddenly finds themselves with a two-year suspended sentence. I can understand why people do it for that reason. But there are other motives, often financial. Be under no illusion. We rewarded informants handsomely. And quality information comes at a price. So as long as informants aren't plotting and planning the crimes themselves, they're not being lead conspirators in any serious crime but they're on the periphery they've got their ears to the ground and they can provide good quality information which again comes back to cost effective methods um, then yeah they can be rewarded handsomely and I some of the informants that I handled were, were handed out frequently repeatedly Large sums of money. We're talking five-figure sums. Yeah, yeah. And running these informants, and uh, we call them, are they criminal informants they're known as? Is that right? CIs, or is that more of an American term? Well, uh, they're, they're called various things in, in, in policing circles. Snouts, grasses, snitches. And whilst those are not particularly glowing terms, there's even worse titles that they have attached to them, of course. But, um, yeah, I think now the, the correct terminology, I think, is a chiz which is a covert human intelligence source. A bit clunky, that. Yeah. Though, such a police and acronyms. Um, 
But yeah, they they are so important. But you know, handling informants is an absolute minefield because, and many police careers have been ruined because the relationships with informants have become inappropriate ones, corrupt ones, if you will. Um, You know, these people, whilst you profess to be their friend, you never are. Well, you shouldn't become their friend and you should clearly keep some distance between you and them. Some of them are career criminals. They're duplicitous, lying, conniving, untrustworthy individuals. And they need to be controlled with a rod of iron. You must be extremely firm with them and not have the tail wagging the dog, which does happen sometimes. Personally, I never liked them because a grass is a grass. But they were the tools of my trade. So they would be convinced that I liked them and we would have very, very successful working relationships. But of course, there are always downsides. Notably, informants get killed. And two informants that I handled both died as a result of getting shot. Um, and, you know, that's that's the game they play. That's the price they can pay. One of them was, is it Peter McNeil, mm. isn't it? Peter McNeil and David Norris, yeah. um, who were both such prolific informants that people began to ask a lot of serious questions about them. And, and I think people within the criminal fraternity identified them for what they were, informants. And, you know, when you're playing around with some very, very serious people, um, sometimes these people exact the ultimate retribution upon you. And that's an assassin's bullet. Yeah. Well, moving back to, to operations, so you've got a you've got a target. What kind of things would you need to know about them before you arrange this sort of first meeting with this target? Generally speaking, when I'm going undercover, I don't want to know anything about that person apart from what is it they're offering to sell. Yeah. Um, because, but but this was a personal preference. I knew colleagues who worked undercover. And they wanted to know every minute detail about the people that they were going undercover uh, against. Personally, all I really wanted to to know was, have I arrested them before when I was operating in an overt police role? Because clearly you don't want to pitch up and somebody go, oh, hello, you're the copper that nicked me six years ago. So that was about as as as, as far as I would want to go in knowing the background of the villain. Had I nicked them before, ever come across them before, no, okay, what are they selling? I didn't need to know the ins and outs of their criminal behaviour. I didn't necessarily need to know where they lived, who they lived with, all those kind of things, because I would find those things out during the course of conversations with them. And I would feel that I would be genuinely more probative and more questioning in a conversational, jolly kind of way than if perhaps... I knew every kind of detail about their lives. So, yeah, that was my preference. I really don't need to know. I'll find it all out when I get to meet them. Yeah, and it sounds a silly question, but I'll ask it anyway. So how do you kind of go about, like, for example, you were saying some colleagues like to know every minute detail about this target. 
how, how do you actually find out those minute details? Is it talking to other potential informants? Is it just criminal database checking? Is it other a, intelligence? A lot of the criminals that we went undercover against would already be on the police's radar. So they, they would feature in, in some form of criminal intelligence database. Um, so, so it would be quite easy to find out about them. Others didn't, of course, and really the very best kind of villains that you would go undercover against were the ones that police didn't know about, hadn't heard about, and had been operating completely under the radar successfully. Um, you know, I've often been asked over the years by various reporters and other people in the media, who was the most famous crook you ever operated against? Well, a famous crook is a foolish crook because everybody knows you're a crook. So you'll be very much on the police's radar. But of course, if you look, going back many decades, at criminals who have had high profiles within the media um, and, and been villains, they are the ones that really pose a threat to the establishment because they are really sticking two fingers up at the establishment. They're saying, here I am, I'm in the papers, people write books about me, I'm a famous successful crook. Catch me if you can. A bit like the craze or something. Or... Exactly, exactly. But um, and and um, more latterly, people like Kenneth Noy, mm. you know, whose whose reputation now will precede him wheresoever he goes. Should he ever get released from prison, you don't want to be famous if you're a crook. You really don't. You want to operate underneath the radar. You want to have a legitimate business through which you can launder all your ill-gotten gains because there's no point earning millions through whatever crime it is if you can't enjoy those millions and of course now with proceeds of crime legislation you have to be very clever in how you take that illegitimate bag of cash legitimize it at a cost plow it through bank accounts so that it comes out the system at the other end and you can with a clear conscience kind of thing, then go and spend it as you will. How do they legitimise that cash? What kind of things do they do? Well, historically dating back to the, the 80s uh, and stuff, um, cash was still king and the proceeds of crime legislation wasn't what it is today. But essentially, if now in the 21st century you are a criminal, you're dealing predominantly in cash, although let's remember so much is moving online, you're still dealing with cash, for example, in the, in the illegal drugs industry, then you need to, to process that cash in, and it always comes at a price. So you will either have businesses yourself or you will have a network of, of, of other criminals who have businesses through which you can legitimately plough that money. So say, for example, you run a restaurant and it serves... 50 covers a night, that's what you're going to tell, the, the or, or that's what it actually does. If you're going to launder money through it, what you will actually do is, and you pay a price for this, but you will tell the tax man that you serve 100 covers a night. So that creates the extra capacity through which you can launder the money. But of course, if the police or Revenue and Customs pour over your accounts with a very fine tooth comb, they might say, well, you didn't buy enough food to feed 100 people. You know, this is clearly a money laundering operation. So you have to be very careful. So then you have to go out and legitimately buy that extra food 
which would then serve 100 covers in your restaurant instead of 50. But then what are you going to do with that food? All right, you might sell it in a pub, for example. You might use it as family and friends. You might, you, you, you then otherwise have to put it to good use. So laundering your money can be quite a complex process. There is a cost involved, but villains are willing to pay that cost. But you've got to be clever about it and you've got to be thorough. And I know of a case of one restaurant that did a very similar situation to the one I've just mentioned. And the thing they got caught out on was the amount of napkins that they sent to the laundry. The police poured over every single corner of their accounting and it all stacked up, except at the end of the night when they'd served 50 covers, they sent 50 napkins to the laundry, they didn't sell 100. And that was their Achilles heel and that's how the whole accounting was eventually proved to be a sham and that's what led to their downfall. It sounds like a Columbo episode. There's always that small detail that uh, catches the uh, murder out, isn't it? <laughs> it's where the devil lives. So back to our, our operation. Um, so we've now got to create a, a legend to fit in with this target. So how do you go about creating this legend? Once again, stick to what you know. Um, you might want to create uh, a criminal history for yourself. Okay, now I would always create myself one or two convictions. And of course, we had access to what was then called the Criminal Records Office. So our, our false criminal records could be incorporated in there. So if some corrupt cop who was in the pay of the villains was paid to do a criminal record check on me in my undercover name, it would come up with the convictions. I only ever put minor convictions on there. You don't want to put something on there that says you got five years in prison because the villains will say, well, what jail did you serve your time in? And did you meet so-and-so and all that kind of thing? So steer away from saying that you've done prison time, which wasn't a difficult thing to do because you'd say, look, I'm pretty smart and you know, I've, I've never done any substantial period of imprisonment. You might have done a night in the police cells, for example. So I would invariably put a conviction in there for a minor assault because, you know, I used to I used to talk about the three Fs. That was what I would largely talk about when I was um, in a company of villains and it was fighting, fucking and football. So I would make sure that my convictions were based around, you know, a fight or something like that, or maybe a, a drink driving conviction, which, uh, which could sometimes be helpful if you wanted to say you were serving a, a driving ban and you had a driver or something like that it was always a, a very good reason to bring another undercover colleague in to to mind your back yeah now these people you're meeting they're a wide range of people and typically serious and dangerous individuals so you've kind of arranged this first meeting of your target what's the goal of that first meeting and what sort of discussions do you have to get along and to convince them that you are genuine Whilst some of the villains that I dealt with were particularly unpleasant, psychotic, gun-toting lunatics, others were actually nice people. And you could have a bit of a laugh and a joke with them. You'd have things in common because you were both operating above the law. Um, so there was, you were, you were kindred spirits to a certain extent. Um, but yeah, you, you, you want to get on with these people. You want to kind of establish uh, a working business relationship. So I would always try and 
downplay the sort of tough man violence bit as much as I could because I didn't want to up the ante. I would never take a gun with me undercover, although I was often asked if I wanted to because my thinking was, no, if I start taking guns onto the plot, that just gives them a reason to bring guns onto the plot. And it allowed me the moral high ground when I was going undercover and I knew they were carrying, I would just walk away and say, look, I've, I've come here to do business. I've not come here to prove how hard we are or, you know, that I've got access to guns and this, that and the other. I'm not here for some kind of willy-waggling contest. I'm here as a businessman to, to, to make some money. And if you want to come on the plot carrying that, as I pointed to the, the gun that would be quite overly held in their shoulder holster, I'd just say, no, not interested. You're monkeys, you're clowns. I want nothing to do with you. Was that quite common, they had guns and stuff? Or? Not common, but it happened on more than one occasion. Um, you know, these people in those circles would carry weapons. They're carrying around commodities that are worth an awful lot of money on the uh, you know in the illegal drugs trade for example and so many of them were often very uh, aware and concerned about getting robbed so that's why they would sometimes carry guns to to prevent them being robbed of their contraband mm. Yeah, which has a high market value, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and where do you go when, once you get robbed of five kilos of cocaine? You can't go crying to the cops that you've just been robbed. And eventually somebody wants paying for that five kilos of cocaine. So they really, really didn't want to get robbed. Yeah, yeah I can kind of understand that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Same, but by the same token, I didn't want to get robbed of the large amounts of the commissioner's money yeah. that I was carrying around in holdalls and suitcases and all that kind of stuff. So it kind of gave you some sort of um, some mutual territory mm. over which to kind of negotiate as to when the drugs were going to be brought on the plot and the cash was going to be brought on the plot and all those sort of things. So, so they often formed the basis of long, protracted and heated negotiations. Yeah. So we've got our, so we now, this will lead to a, so your first meeting leads to a second meeting. Um, and this is the one in which the arrests are going to be made. So how do these sort of meetings play out and what kind, what do you do and what kind of support do you have in those situations? Okay. Well, I'd be delighted if it was a second meeting. Yeah, it might not be. When this operation was going to come to a successful conclusion, I'd be absolutely delighted. But anyway, let's just say it is. Right. I've got to try and achieve three things in my undercover role. Number one, that they bring the contraband onto the plot. Number two, that the bad guys can be arrested. And number three, that I can make good my escape to try and keep my legend alive, protect any informant that might have introduced me and all that kind of thing. So they're the three things that I'm really trying to achieve. And the negotiations are all based around that as far as I'm thinking. Of course, the bad guys are thinking... They don't want to get robbed and they don't want to get arrested and they want to get the money. So they're the things that are dominating their thoughts. So you have to meet in some kind of halfway house to achieve that. I might insist that before I saw, before I bring my cash <coughs> onto the plot, I want to see the drugs. Okay, fine. They might want to take me somewhere. They might want to blindfold me. They might want to 
somebody else to bring the drugs onto the plot. There was always these unquantifiables about which you had to negotiate. Likewise, I'm not going to sit in a pub car park, for example, or a supermarket car park, or in a hotel room like some kind of sitting duck with a hundred grand cash sitting at my feet. I'm too easy to rob. So likewise, I might have somebody in a car floating around on the end of a mobile phone that I can call to bring the cash in when I'm happy that the drugs are there. But you're forever trying to persuade people to do what a lot of the time they inherently and quite naturally don't want to do because they don't want to get arrested. They want to be in, you know, they want to, to, yeah, they want to get the money and they don't want to get arrested and they don't want to get robbed. So with their objectives and my objectives, somehow you have to make them meet in the middle. And we did, frequently. The lure of the cash is a very strong thing. At the end of the day, never lose sight of the fact that I've got what they want and that's the cash. So I would always use that as my my ultimate bargaining tool, which it was. Yeah, and what kind of what kind of locations did these sort of meetings and things were happening? What kind of places were they? Well, as I said, I've jobs have gone down in pub car parks, supermarket car parks, five star hotels, um, people's flats. You know, if the bad guys wanted to wanted me to go to their flat or their house to do the trade, then generally speaking, I'd be quite happy to do that. Albeit, of course, it, it would throw up a lot of challenges. In other words, could I escape? Was it built like Fort Knox? So would the cops be able to get in there before all the drugs were flushed down the toilet or something like that? Um, so each and every situation would create challenges which had to be met and overcome. And so, yeah, there wasn't really a, a hard and fast rule book for it. But a lot of the time, I would try and persuade them to go to public places because it would satisfy my overriding three objectives. And, um, and it might sometimes be regarded as a little bit safer than walking into, into someone's flat or house in territory that was particularly well known to them, where they could have spotters out on the ground, where you could be held hostage, and they then demand that the money is brought in, uh, and all that kind of thing. All sorts of delightful things which actually happened to me. But um, yeah, so you, you, you had to be fluid, you had to be flexible, go with the flow, but organise, structure and dictate as much as you possibly can. And isn't, there's an over sort of justified sense of sort of paranoia about this um, this sort of business and, and stuff. And um, in your in your book, you mention a counter-surveillance technique called dry cleaning. And as our podcast is called The Dry Cleaner Cast, I couldn't sort of let you go without asking you about dry cleaning. Um, what is dry cleaning and how would you use it to protect yourself? Okay, well, dry cleaning is basically checking to see that you're not being followed, okay? So you get you come out your house, you get in the car, you don't want to be followed if you're a criminal because um, you don't want the police knowing what you're up to, where you're going, who you're meeting, all of that. And of course, when I was operating undercover, I would often do dry cleaning in the presence of the bad guys. If I'm in my car and the bad guys got in my car, I would then do my own dry cleaning, number one, to impress him, 
and, and convince him that I was a serious, legitimate, bona fide, experienced bad guy. Um, yeah, so so that's what you do. So what do you do? You go to the roundabout, and as you approach the roundabout, you go around it a couple of times. We've seen those in movies. It happens in real life. You're sitting in a queue of traffic, approaching a set of traffic lights. You jump the red light, and you see if anybody follows you through. Um, because those are the kind of things that in reality create a lot of difficulty for cops who are carrying out surveillance. Red lights are a nightmare. And so many villains, when I was working in a surveillance role, as opposed to an undercover character role, so many of them would do red lights because they were absolutely convinced um, by looking in their rearview mirror that if anybody came through the red light with them, then chances are they were being followed. So they thought... Um, of course, there were other ways of doing that um, and other ways that we did uh, quite often manage to stick on their tail even after they've done a red light. But yeah, that's what dry cleaning is. It's anti-surveillance techniques, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, we'll just shift slightly to some of the legal challenges of undercover work. So, you know, undercover operations do present legal difficulties um, and the goal of any police operation is to catch the criminals and get a conviction in court. Can you talk us through the kind of the legal challenges of undercover work and how officers plan an operation to overcome those challenges? The overriding rule when working undercover is don't be an agent provocateur. So don't cajole, incite, bully, threaten anybody into doing what they otherwise wouldn't do. So if they are a member of this conspiracy and they are a major player in a criminal conspiracy, then that's fine. Let them get on with it. But you must not say to somebody, have you got any drugs for sale? Because that person might not have drugs for sale, but you've just sowed the seed of, oh, okay, so if I do get some drugs for sale, here's someone I can sell them to. You know, you mustn't get them to do something that they otherwise wouldn't do. And you've got to have that at your, the, the forefront of your mind all the time because there is absolutely no point in potentially risking your life, going through a lot of stress, grief and aggravation to, to, to secure the arrest of somebody and the seizure of stolen goods, drugs, contraband, a murder conspiracy, whatever it is, only for them then to get to court and walk out scot-free. That's not the object of the exercise. What you want to do is to have all your efforts kind of rewarded, I guess you could say, by securing convictions. So don't act as an agent provocateur. Do not cajole, bully, persuade, convince, influence somebody to do something that they otherwise would not do. That is the golden rule. There are, of course, other rules about fairness. Um, is the gathering of your intelligence fair um, under the Police and Criminal Evidence Act? That's the overriding principle. At the end of the day, courts have repeatedly found that undercover policing is a fair tactic should the circumstances dictate and should the, should the crime be serious enough and should the deployment of the undercover officer be a lawful, proportionate thing to do, then that's fine. So act fairly, don't be an agent provocateur, and you should be all right. Mm. And I got a sense from your book 
I don't know if I was misreading it, but the hierarchy of the Met kind of treats undercover operations a little bit at arm's length. Was that so, and is that the case today? Well, you know, uh, there is still, and, and it's, it's only going to get worse because we have the Pitchford inquiry into the undercover policing that Special Branch and the National Public Order Intelligence Unit did, which has been so widely, and I would suggest correctly, discredited. The criminal justice system has always aired undercover policing with an air of suspicion because it's such a, um, a fluid kind of part of, of policing over which I think the criminal justice system have often felt they didn't have an awful lot of control. And let's face it, some of the special branch revelations have proved that those suspicions to be well-founded in certain circumstances. Um, so it's um, it will always remain a challenging sphere of policing and a vitally important tactic. Some senior officers are a bit frightened by it. They've not operated undercover themselves. They don't really know what it's like at the coalface. Um, so they are inherently suspicious of it. Some senior officers that I worked for thought I was a blooming miracle worker, right? And I could they came up with some frankly preposterous ideas and, and um, that they wanted us to try and achieve. And I often found that dealing with the senior management was often more challenging than actually dealing with the bad guys. But, you know, so be it. I'd walk out of a briefing and finally go, hooray, that's over and done with. Now can I just get out there and meet the villains? Um, but but so be it. Undercover policing will invariably change when the Pitchford Inquiry starts taking its evidence in chief, albeit will be renamed because uh, Pitchford, unfortunately, has motor neurone disease, so there'll be it will have another name. But when the Pitchford inquiry, whensoever that may be, finally comes up with its report and recommendations, it may potentially change the landscape of undercover policing for generations to come. Undercover policing will survive because as long as you have greed in the human psyche, there will be a need for it. And as I've already explained, it is so cost effective and undercover cops can just go to places and find things out that other more conventional methods of policing just don't do. It will survive. I hope it continues to thrive, but I hope it is always justified and it is only ever used in the battle against serious and organised crime. Now, there are some people out there who argue electronic surveillance could be an alternative to sending an officer into harm's way. Um, certainly when you're targeting sort of terrorist groups and hostile territory, it makes some sense. But electronic surveillance can only get you so far. And it's sort of touched upon this. But can you just talk to us about the use of electronic surveillance and its limitations in tackling kind of organised crimes and criminal gangs? Well, having a, uh, a suitably placed listening device or a video device is a wonderful source of intelligence and information. And I've operated on cases where we've planted a listening device and it has given us product for months. And we have, bit by bit, by picking off the criminal organisation, part by part, we've completely dismantled it and we've left the hotshots, the big guns, with nowhere to go 
other than getting their hands dirty themselves. And so they in turn have been arrested and it's completely dismantled a criminal organisation that had been operating successfully and untouched by policing hands for years. Never underestimate the, 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 the power of that and, and how good it can be. But there's often, um, there's often challenges, of course. Technology is galloping forward at such a pace now that the ability, as we've as only been in the media recently, to eavesdrop through people's smart TVs and the like, possibly means that the, the officers of the state will have tactics, weaponry at their disposal that I could only have dreamt of in my day. I'm all for covert surveillance, but it has to be proportionate. It's got to be lawful. The aims they're setting out to achieve must actually be achievable, and what they're doing must be necessary. And I think as long as that is applied, and there must be, of course, uh, a very robust method of oversight. You know, I think that's vitally important. I'm not a fan of mass surveillance. I think there always needs to be a justification for what you're doing. Um, of course, some will probably argue that there is a justification for mass surveillance. I prefer a targeted approach. Um, I think I, I feel much more comfortable with that. But yes, will electronic surveillance ever completely negate the need for undercover officers? My answer to that is no. There will always be a place because officers can go, undercover officers can go where any other form of surveillance, be it traditional or electronic, just simply can't. Okay, so let's, um, I'd like to sort of look a bit at organised crime because we use this term uh, organised crime and it can mean many things to many people so can you kind of give us a sort of dummies guide to organised crime in the UK and what kind of groups are operating on the streets what the specialities are and their links to the drug trade well yeah yes I mean organised crime has, has had a very firm grip on the drugs trade for decades and if we continue down the same prohibition route that we're going to, that grip will not be loosened significantly, but we might get onto that. Um, Organised crime, <laughs> can I give a definition? Well, it is, what it, it is what it is. If there is an element of people liaising amongst one another, of grouping together in order to perpetuate long-running serious crimes, for example, let, let, let's take drug dealing, for example. If, if I am the importer, because I reach out to the producer nation, so I go to Colombia, say, to source the, the cocaine, I arrange the importation, you in turn are the wholesaler, so once it's been successfully imported, you are then the wholesaler who will break up 100 kilos into perhaps 10, 10 kilo parcels, which you will then sell on to perhaps a mid-level dealer who will take his 10 kilos. He in turn will break that down into one kilo parcels and serve those up to people that can 
handle a kilo at a time. In turn, that gets broken down into half kilos, into ounces, and into grams. Well, as far as I'm concerned, all of that is an organised crime example. Um, same with, if you look at the Hatton Garden heist, for example, they were the epitome of organised crime. Somebody came in to do the drilling, somebody came in to dismantle the alarm systems, somebody else was involved in the disposal of the stolen goods. They are organised together, they are working in cahoots, they are a, a gang, they are a team. Again, that's that's your organised crime for you. Mm. And are there any um, particular groups who sort of specialise in different elements, uh, criminal elements? <laughs> well, yes, yes, there are. Um, and if you go back to the eighties, for example, there were some criminals who said, "I oh, don't do drugs. Don't go anywhere near drugs. Don't agree with them. Absolutely not." Um, however. I think that is largely becoming a thing of the past. There are, of course, some types of crime that, that a criminal's code of conduct would not allow them to go anywhere near, for example. You know, trading in decent images of children, for example, I'm sure would be beyond the pale for any self-respecting criminal um, uh, who may deal in, who may have absolutely no qualms whatsoever about dealing in stolen goods and committing a, a, a VAT fraud, dealing drugs, dealing in firearms, being involved in acts of violence. Um, yeah, you know, there there is sometimes a, a, a code of conduct amongst villains themselves. But again, once you start dangling substantial amounts of money in front of people, it's amazing how quickly their moral code will rapidly disappear. Yeah, money talks, so to speak. It certainly does. Let's let's have a look at drugs in particular, because your operations were typically, you know, targeting the sale and importation of drugs. And you used to teach um, fellow police officers about sort of drugs and their effects on the user. Can you give us a kind of crash course into the types of drugs on the streets today and how they affect the user? Well, now of course there are there are legal highs and all that kind of stuff and, and stuff out there on the streets that was never even in existence in my day when I was at the peak of my powers. Things like spice, for example, which is so rampant amongst jails and, and what have you. But still the core drugs kind of remain the same. Cannabis in all its guises, whether that be stuff that's grown in lofts, the very potent strain of, of skunk and drugs like that. Cocaine, crack cocaine. Uh, cannabis, ecstasy, those drugs have been around for decades and they're still prevalent now. We are, of course, a producer country of cannabis now because there's barely a day goes by when a factory won't be seized somewhere, whether it be in the, fl in the, in the loft of a, a rented flat or in some commercial premises or even in a nuclear bunker like oh, yes. we found out like uh, only a couple of weeks ago, um, which just goes to show how... Uh, tenacious and inventive some of these criminals can be. So we really are a producer country of cannabis now, which only a few decades ago we weren't. Of course, the South American countries that still produce um, cocaine, Bolivia, Peru, Colombia, despite trillions of dollars being ploughed into efforts to try and stop the farmers and this, that and the other, still it crops up in, pardon the pun, 
it, it is grown in, they move it from region to region and, and, and it appears where once they thought they had eradicated it. You know, at the end of the day, it's a supply and demand thing, isn't it? Talk about heroin, we still have so many um, opium poppies being grown and harvested in Afghanistan, for example. There's still an element from Pakistan and other places. You know, these are constants that have been on law enforcement's radar for for years and years and years, and yet still they are producer countries, still the drugs flood into the country, still we fail to win the war, because it can't be won. Am I right in thinking cocaine on the street today is only typically like 20% pure, is that right? Well, it, it's nowhere, apparently it's nowhere near the, the purity levels that it, that it used to be. And of course, it's so much more prevalent. You have so many more people working within the cocaine supply industry that you did 30 years ago. Because, and it used to be a drug of the... Uh, of the entertainment industry or the or the very privileged. Now it's an everyman drug. Here on a Friday night, you will find there are thousands of people parking their white vans in the car park of the pub, going into the toilet and having a line. You know, it's everywhere. Um, and, um, and so there is, as long as there is massive demand for it, there will be a supply chain to meet that demand. And with that purity issue i mean like what are they putting in the rest of the cocaine that somebody's you know putting in their body <laughs> well absolutely and that and that depends on the um <laughs> well it depends on the dealer doesn't it um what they are choosing to cut it with whether it be artificial canes ligocaine and those sort of things or whether it's something as simple as uh, as vitamin c powder but this bleeds into my argument which i don't know whether you want me to touch mm, on it mm, now yeah, or, it or later yeah. but the folly of the war on drugs and the prohibition stance that us and many other governments take mm. i if i was going to buy a gram of cocaine i would far rather buy it from a licensed and regulated outlet where i knew exactly what was in it rather than buying it from some bloke in a dimly lit pub car park who may or may not have a knife or a gun, and who has an inherent interest in me consuming more and more of his drug. I think the whole prohibition thing is complete and utter nonsense. And, I, and I'm, I'm pretty well qualified to, to talk about this, I would venture to suggest, because not only did I spend a large part of my working career immersing myself in the drugs trade and trying to combat it, but once I left the cops, I became a problem drug user myself. I tried to replicate the adrenaline rush of working undercover and I foolishly tried to do that through drugs and manifestly failed and it had a significant impact upon my life. But I'm pleased to say now that I'm over 11 years clean and they've been the best 11 years of my life. I'm not going to get on my horse, high horse about it. You know, people will always take drugs. It is frankly ludicrous that we haven't legalised and regulated the illegal drugs industry. I think the massive profits that an enlightened government could earn from from legalising and regulating drugs could be ploughed into education for primary school children to educate them as to the risks involved in taking drugs and thereby educate them away from drugs, like we do to our primary school children with cigarettes, for example. 
I think there would be billions left over uh, for rehab and treatment programs of problem drug users. We could probably go into prisons and start getting some real credible and worthy education pro programs in place. And at the end of the day, we would cut off that route for the 14-year-old to get a mobile phone, a 9mm pistol and a mobile and a, and a mountain bike and suddenly become a drug dealer. If we wrestled that industry away from organised crime, and it wouldn't be easy, it would take a lot of resolve and there might be some problems along the way, but it would create such huge, huge benefits for all of society. We wouldn't have people queuing around the block at the drugstore or the chemists or whatever we called the, 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 the drug outlets. There would not be people queuing around the block by the millions to wreck their lives. There really wouldn't be. People that want to take drugs would still go there and would take drugs, but they would buy drugs that were manufactured in a regulated and licensed factory so that the contents would be known and wouldn't contain any harmful adulterants in them. Um, you would get advices to the usage when you bought them. And all of a sudden, you would demystify all this, all this drugs industry. I'm sure that so many teenagers start smoking dope because they think, well, they know it's illegal. They think their parents probably wouldn't do it. So they think it's a bit hip and it's a bit rebellious and all that kind of stuff. Well, all of a sudden, how cool and rebellious would, would it be standing in the drugstore buying an eighth of a gram of skunk when your mum or your dad or your granddad could be two people behind you in the queue queuing up to buy exactly the same? Suddenly it's not cool. Suddenly it's not rebellious. Suddenly it's not hip. Suddenly it's something that we could all do if we wanted to. And I think that you might see an initial spike in numbers as people's inquisitiveness got the better of them. But I think in the long term and in a generation or two, you would manifestly improve the entire situation, move from prohibition to harm reduction. It's the only way forward. It will happen. Drug regulation and legalisation will definitely happen. There is a growing movement now which is really gaining some traction. There's a long way to go and I fear it may not happen in my lifetime, but I'm entirely confident that it will happen in my children's lifetime and I can't wait for that time. Well, I know, because you've talked about this before, I know some critics um, like to say that if the police just targeted the users instead of the suppliers, then um, that will somehow magically solve the drug problem. But I'm not convinced by that. That is the biggest load of nonsense mm. I've ever heard in my life. You would need millions of police officers working 24 hours a day mm. to basically police an unpoliceable problem. Mm. It's complete nonsense. And I've heard Mr. Hitchin spout yes. it before, right? In fact, I've debated with him before about this. It is comp complete folly and nonsense. Only in the last week or two, we've heard a chief constable talking about how they can't really police people who are downloading indecent images of children on the internet. 
If we don't have the resources to do that, how do you think the police will have the resources to nick everybody who on a Friday night are sitting in their lounges doing nobody any harm and rolling a spliff? How utterly ludicrous. He could not be far further removed from the reality if he tried. It's nonsense. It come, kind of becomes a bit police state because you describe it as somebody in their private home doing something privately yeah. and suddenly it's, you know, how are you going to detect people having a spliff or something yeah, and exactly. arrest them? It's... Complete nonsense. You know, there are tons of cocaine consumed frequently in the UK. Tons and tons of, of, of cannabis is smoked by millions, millions of people. Okay? And then how do you... So what do you then do build thousands of prisons to throw millions of people into whose only vice in life is at the weekend having a smoke or having a line. It's complete nonsense. What we actually need to do is take control of that industry from organised crime. That's how we set about reducing the harm that drugs create. We suddenly wrestle the industry from the villains who have an inherent interest in making you want to consume more and more of their drugs, which we don't know how they're manufactured, what they're cut with, or any other dangerous adulterants that might be in there. Who wants, what would you rather do? Take an ecstasy pill that has been manufactured in a licensed and regulated sterile factory in the UK, or do you want to take something that's been made on some dodgy pill machine in some lock-up garage in some barren backwater somewhere where you have absolutely no idea what the contents of it are. You're playing Russian roulette with your life, potentially. It's nonsense. We need a massive, massive rethink. Unfortunately, um, it's not a vote winner. So politicians, I think, are petrified of it. But as I say, the movement is gaining traction. The movement is unstoppable. There's an inevitability about it. It will happen. Mm. And let's have a look at that the illegal drug trade. I mean, one of the things I've always found sort of distasteful about drugs is the actual the food chain of it being created and the trade itself. Um, give us a can you kind of paint us a picture of the life of cocaine from where it comes from all the way through the elements until it ends up on the streets here? Okay. So deep in the heart of Bolivia, a farmer grows the coca plant, okay? And that's what he does. He grows coca. Some of it in Bolivia, they have some licensed products that have cocaine in it. So he may sell a proportion of his crop to the government, but he'll basically exist on about $2 a day. Or the coca grower sells his coca leaves to the organised crime gangs of Bolivia who then take the leaves and dry them and process them using quite a, a concoction of, of toxic chemicals who then processes the cocaine in uh, a hidden factory in the, in, in, in the depths of, of beyond and then that is eventually processed into the slab of, of compressed powder, compressed cocaine, which is what will be purchased and then transported from Bolivia to wherever it may go, Europe, the States, 
Australia, to wherever there is the demand for it. And as much as law enforcement tries to play catch up with the criminals, they then create yet another more inventive and clever way of shipping the drugs from where it's manufactured to where it's got to go. So it may, for example, arrive in Spain. At each stage of the process, it becomes a more valuable commodity because there are more costs involved in the transporting of it. If, of course, a government went directly to the Bolivian government and said, right, you license your so many more farmers to grow so much more uh, coca, which we will buy and to dry and then transport the coca leaves from Bolivia, for example, to the UK for processing, all of a sudden, that commodity is an absolute bargain basement prices because the coca leaf itself, you know, the, 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 the Bolivian farmer can't charge much for that. What we could actually do is afford to pay the Bolivian farmer a much better price for his coca leaves, which in inv invariably would drag him and his family out of poverty and may, in fact, be able to afford schooling and education for the children, which has previously been denied to them. So then the leaves are shipped over to the, to the UK, perhaps under escort from customs or, or the military or whatever, or, you know, but I mean, let's face it, valuable commodities sail the high seas, don't they, frequently? Um, so maybe that wouldn't be necessary. It then comes to a factory in the UK where it is processed under license and it is sold. We undercut the villains massively on price. And there are three things on which a regulated industry and licensed industry would need to beat the, the villains on. Price, obviously, purity, easily done, and availability. So once you beat the villains on those three aspects, they've got nowhere to go. They just cannot beat what the state is manufacturing and then licensing and reaping the profits from. The crooks have got nowhere to go. They're all going to start moving online now. Look at how online crime and fraud is, is expanding at a frightening rate. We will be able to free up all our law enforcement officers who are currently engaged on pointless, unwinnable war against drugs. We can then redirect them into where the growth crime of, in, of, of industry will be, the dark web, online fraud, all of that kind of stuff, and just redirect our resources. It makes sense. Because mm, the illegal drug trade at the moment, there's just a, once it, the drugs are, you know, kind of get uh, away from Bolivia into mainland Europe, wherever, it's just a sort of trail of misery, isn't it? From the moment they arrive, of people undercutting each other, or there's murders over this thing, you know, this... Well, yes, there are, but there are also massive, massive profits to be made. And there are many people who are benefiting from it now. There will be thousands of people in the UK tonight selling cocaine in relatively small quantities, you know, eight grams here, half an ounce there, and they will be making a very nice living pocketing maybe a £1,000 a week or £2,000 a week. And essentially, dare I say it, not doing any harm. They're selling to their weekend clientele, 
who have worked hard all week and want to go out and party hard at the weekend. And cocaine enables them to do that. That's their drug of choice. Um, and so there is this whole layered, tiered triangle of of people involved in the drug industry, um, which is left in the hands of organised crime. And it could so... Not easily. It, it won't be easy. If organised crime won't give up this industry without a fight, of course it won't. But of co as long as we beat them on price, purity and availability, yeah, yeah, we could... We could redirect so many people away from... You know, if, if, if teenagers are denied the opportunity to become drug dealers because they can't compete with how the state sells it, Surely we can find something better for them to do. Yeah. yeah. Am I right in thinking in certain um, elements that the drugs trade has been used to fund terrorism? I know you had uh, you yourself sort of um, dealt with the IRA who are using the money from drug sales to buy weapons. And we've mentioned the Taliban and they're allowing farmers to grow opium so they can maintain popular support in the region. Can you talk to us a bit about the drugs trade, the illegal drugs trade, and its relationship to terrorism? Organised terrorism needs funding. Al-Qaeda needed massive funding. The IRA needed masses of funding. Costs a lot of money. And of course, where is there a lot of money sloshing around? In the illegal drugs industry. So of course, terrorism will want to benefit from that. It's a complete no-brainer. And, and, and once again, if governments get a stranglehold on that industry instead of organised crime, you will cut off the potential funding almost overnight. And hopefully save a lot of lives. Along the way. You'll save a lot of lives because... Not, not only from the, the terrorism aspect, but if you look at drugs as a, with a harm prevention at the forefront of your mind, rather than prohibition, you'll have a more compassionate approach to problem drug users and you'll find the money to provide the resources to get them off drugs. And if governments controlled the industry, they'd have plenty of cash to go around. Just, I'd like to just touch upon this. Um, you know, and you, you know, we were talking about it earlier with, um, as your time undercover, you came across a lot of illegal weaponry and things like that. You know, how does the, so with the illegal gun trade, kind of what kind of, what kind of weapons are out there and where are they coming from and how do they end up on the streets? Well, of course, in my day working undercover, the, um, the machine pistol hadn't been experienced by us before and they become more and more prevalent, of course, um, semi-automatic weapons are now far more prevalent than they ever were. I mean, I'm that blooming old that I'm talking about sawn-off shotguns and, and old-style revolvers and pistols. So the weaponry, of course, has become more sophisticated now than that which, which I used to experience. But, you know, they all kill people. And where do they kind of come from? How do they, how do they get into the country? Well, that's a... That's a very good question. We know that the IRA, for example, going back a generation or so, used to get shipments of them from places like Libya. Um, and so they would get masses of, of weapons 
into the country through that kind of route. Um, I suspect that there has probably been the abuse of diplomatic bags in the past um, that's helped various um, regimes um, arm themselves, often illegally. Uh, but of course, p people are very inventive. Criminals are very inventive. And as they will source drugs from overseas, then they will source weapons from overseas. And now, of course, villains have the benefit of the dark web. One can only wonder and worry as to how effective that may be in the supply of illegal weapons. There definitely was a case not long ago of a boy, um, I say a boy, he was about 19, I think, ordering a Glock semi-automatic pistol over the dark web, and it actually got to his house. And that wasn't what um, got him found out. It was something else. So it was amazing that he managed to get this gun, and that wasn't the thing that triggered off the alarm. Well, there you go. There's a, there's a, a, a prime example. Yeah. Yeah. Now, your undercover work sort of took a personal toll on you. And from everything you've said, I've got nothing but a lot of respect for you and the work that you've done. And the, you know, the stress levels of what you've been under must have been tremendous in those operations. And honestly, I have no idea how you managed to kind of keep going as long as you did. You've mentioned in past interviews that you'd wished you'd just walked the beat for the last 30 years instead of the undercover work. Do you really feel that way about your career when you look back on it? Well, I'm fortunate enough to still be getting work um, as a result of my experiences undercover um, and, and, and other experiences that I had within the police service. But, you know, I paid a very, very high price. I was hospitalised twice, you know, when I had complete and utter breakdown. And I still, to this day, take a very low maintenance dose of anti-psychotic medication to keep me well. So you could say I'm almost paying the price to this day, but it's a price worth paying. Those dark hours, those dark weeks spent in lock-in psychiatric wards were, were awful. And I had struggles to, to get better again and, and stay well long after I'd been released. So the impact was very severe. I'm not alone in that. You know, unfortunately, undercover policing has a particularly high casualty rate. People that suffer emotionally, psychologically, uh, and some physically. So it's really not a career path that I would recommend, and I'm certainly not recommending it to my children. Um, yeah, I think life would have been very different if I'd have done my 30 years, say, working in a neighbourhood policing uh, environment, for example, and I'd walked the beat for 30 years and I hadn't been shot at and I hadn't been stabbed and I hadn't been held hostage and I hadn't had a breakdown, two, break, two complete meltdowns and all that, yeah, my life might have been very, very different. And um, I'm lucky now. I'm, I'm extremely lucky now in so much as that I've got a fabulous wife and fantastic children and, and, and all of that. I'm a very lucky man. But yeah, I think my life would have been simpler and without the great extremes that I've had to experience if I'd never stuck my hand in the air and gone, yeah, 
I'll go undercover. And since leaving the Met, you've gone on to work in the private sector as an investigator for hire, I believe, and you also famously sort of become the head of Channel 4's Hunted, which I'm a big fan of, um, and you've also been a technical consultant on police dramas such as Murphy's Law and a new show called Gorilla. Can you tell us a little bit about your technical consulting work on those shows and how your experiences have helped them? Certainly. Well, Gorilla, which is coming out soon on Sky Atlantic, was written and directed by a man called John Ridley, who won the uh, best screenplay for writing 12 Years a Slave. Um, and I was contacted by the production company at a very early stage in the, in the show's development because it's essentially, um, well, it, it has a very strong police element to the story set in the 1970s. So I was asked if I wanted to come on board as a, as a police advisor um, and yeah, John Ridley's a very nice man, had a really good time working on it. And essentially, I help consult in relation to the, the, the accuracy, as much as the drama will allow, onto the policing, the terminology, the technology, and, and that kind of stuff. Of course, what you must not do as a police consultant on any drama is say, no, 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 no. It wouldn't have happened like that. It would have happened like this. We are telling stories. You mustn't let the, uh, the, the, the sort of technical side of things get in the way of the drama. What you've got to do is help the drama. So, of course, on some occasions in the show, you will see stuff which I would quite happily say, it never happened like that. But we're telling a drama. We're, we're writing a drama. We're looking to entertain people. So... Um, and I learned that at a very early stage when I was consulting on, on TV dramas. So, yeah, enhance the show. Don't inhibit it. Don't get in the way. Don't be dog. Don't be too, um, yeah, stuck in your ways. But, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a nice part of, of what I do. Mm, mm. And I think, is it, is it James Nesbitt from Murphy's Law? He, he really enjoyed working with you from what I understand. Yeah, we had a great time. Yeah, yeah Jimmy Nesbitt was great fun. And um, there'd been two series of Murphy's Law before I came on board, but the first two series, he it was a bit cartoon character-ish. He adopted a different role every week, um, and we changed the show entirely when series three came around and I came on board, and it became a lot more earthy, gritty, and real. And I had a great time with Jimmy Nesbitt, scaring the life out of him sometimes. For example, he, he went, we were in a pub one night having a drink, and he's gone to the toilet. And I've been sitting there in the pub talking to him about escape routes, where you position yourself, what you're looking for, how you can get out of this place if it all goes wrong, what weaponry is there lying around that you could use to defend yourself if need be, all that kind of stuff. And he's lapping it up, really taking it all in. We're having a good time. And then he goes to the toilet. So I gave him a few moments, and then I followed him into the toilet. And of course, he's made the fatal mistake He's, in the, he's at the far urinal, completely focusing on what he's doing at the time, giving no heed whatsoever to anybody who comes through the door. You know, well, if you're going to pretend to be working undercover, Jimmy, do it right. So I have crept right up behind him. He's mid-flow, and I've grabbed hold of him. I said, Jimmy, you're now dead. Right. Then he kind of learned a little bit more about the fact that when you're in an undercover role, you never switch off. 
and you pay attention as to what urinal you're going to use, which gives you the best aspect on the door and where there might be a window or, or another route of escape, etc., etc., etc. And I did that kind of thing to him frequently and I just got him continually thinking as if he were in an undercover role. And that's why I think he did such a fantastic job in the, in the last three series of Murphy's. Excellent. And are we allowed to talk about Hunted a little bit? Or we can talk about I don't want to get you... Uh, I love Hunted. <laughs> it's a great show. Thank you. Thank and you. Um, I think Mick and Ao, have, at least they've indicated on Twitter occasionally, listen to this show. So <laughs> I don't well, got any words for that. <laughs> many congratulations. I've congratulated them in the past and I will continue to do so. Through gritted teeth, gentlemen, well done. No, no, I mustn't be uncharitable. They were great. <laughs> now, with regards to Nick and I, are there any um, any things that like future contestants can learn from their successes? Unfortunately, there probably are, and they'll be watching reruns of Series 2 as they prepare for life on the run in the uh, upcoming Series 3, which we're going to shoot in the summer. Um, yeah, I mean, Nick was... Nick was fantastic. I think he was just so utterly charming that he got people on his side and people wanted to help him. And they blooming well did. Um, and, and fair play to him. And Io was, was technically savvy. He really grasped the challenge. He taunted me. He rang me up um, in Operational HQ. He he was a great character and fair play to him. We were so close to getting them both. We were so close. Just a matter of seconds. But hey, they won. We lost. Well done, gentlemen. Yeah, I mean, Nick, Nick recovered well because he nearly got caught, I think, in the first episode, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, he took a wrong turn in. We were plotted up on the, on the canal, ready for him just to cycle his way into our trap. But he got lost. So he had a stroke of luck. You need a stroke of luck when you're on the run. You know, I have had a stroke of luck as well on more than one occasion. So you've you've got to have a bit of a bit of luck on your side. And um, yeah. And the previous winners, I think, from the year before, they were hitchhiking a lot, were they not? Is that right? Yes, indeed. Yeah, the randomness of the hitchhiking, I think that's a very powerful tool if you can discipline yourself so that you are completely random then it goes without saying that you will be uh, a greater challenge for us. Yeah, and um, was it towpaths, I think? And being in the middle of nowhere were quite good things. <laughs> yep, they were. But of course, there's always a downside to that. Because if you're in the middle of nowhere, you are going to get noticed. Mm. I, think, I think country folk do have a bit of a knack for noticing what is out of the norm and if we get our message out far and wide enough and they pick the phone up to help us, there is, I'm sure, in Series 3, going to be a handsome um, reward available for those who want to help us. Oh. <laughs> yeah, well, there were, you know, there was in Series 2, and if we're going to talk about the show, I must remind people that we're the good guys, okay? So you should help the hunters. We are the good guys. I remember actually. I think it was when it was you were filming last year. I do vaguely remember seeing the odd um, kind of uh, need for information coming up on Twitter from time to time. Yeah. I thought, oh, that's the new series of Hunted filming, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Is there anything you can tell us about the new series that's coming up? Is there anything kind of new or different or 
um, you know, any exciting things coming up with it? Well, you know, technology moves on. Um, the technology that is available to law enforcement a year down the line is different and is always improving and, and is always changing. I think I'm okay in saying that we will look, as we seek to replicate the powers of the state, you may see that there will be some, some additions possibly to the, to the powers that, that we deploy during the show. Oh, interesting. I'll have to tune in. When, so I suppose that'll be out in the autumn, I'm assuming. Is that right? Or? I'm not entirely sure of transmission dates yet. No. Okay. People have to keep an eye out for it. Yeah. Well, please, thank you so much. Where can people sort of find out more about you and your work? Well, thank you. My autobiography, which is called The Gangbuster, is still widely available. You can buy it online from all the usual outlets and what have you. And that really tells the tale of my life undercover. Um, you can, of course, follow me on Twitter, at Peter Blexley. I post virtually all my media appearances on there, and I have a, a new play coming out on Radio 4 on the 13th of April. Oh, cool. Uh, What's that about? So that sounds interesting. It's, it's called Hard Stop, yeah. and it's my exploration of the armed police tactic, which is called the hard stop, which led to the death of Azel Rodney, Mark Duggan and others. Mm. Um, it's my exploration of that tactic through a drama, mm. um, which is uh, yeah, on Radio 4 at quarter past two on Thursday the 13th of April. So if anybody would like to tune in and listen to my play, I'd be extremely grateful. Thank you very much, Peter. My pleasure. Thank you. If you've enjoyed the show, please spread the word by connecting with us on Twitter by going to at DryCleanerCast. For more information about the podcast, please visit our website, www.drycleanercast.co.uk. Thank you for listening to the Dry Cleaner Cast. 